0: taboo terrors presents an interview with special effects artist nick benson Nick Benson has an incredibly impressive resume when it comes to special effects work. He has done work on pretty prominent genre films like Tales from the Dark Side, Tremors, Society, The Blob from 1988, folks, and my personal favorite, Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master. When I heard that he worked on Nightmare 4, my favorite Nightmare on Elm Street movie, I just about died. I was so happy to sit down and talk with him about the industry, working in special effects, his work on Nightmare on Elm Street 4. And of course, we get into taboo terrorist territory and talk about extreme horror. So buckle up, guys, for this wacky ride with Nick Benson. Enjoy. Well, welcome, Nick Benson. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Excellent. So I kind of want to start talking about how I guess we met and that is from Morbidly Beautiful. So my podcast, I spin in your podcast actually around the same time that you joined their team, we joined their team. So there was a lot of announcements being made in March for for Morbidly Beautiful. And folks, if you don't know what that is, it's morbidlybeautiful.com. That's our podcast network that we're a part of. So all these announcements are being made and you're one of them and you were announced as a publicity manager, which for me, I'm a vet tech in day-to-day life, so a lot of this stuff, like a lot of this film stuff, it podcast stuff and just a lot of these different things just like really out of my wheelhouse I'm still learning so for me I don't really understand what a publicity manager is so do you mind give me a little lowdown like what are you doing I mean I'm directly involved (laughs) with morbidly beautiful now you're directly involved like how did that come about it all happened at the same time
1: (laughs) yeah it really did um you know I'll tell you typically a publicity director is the guy that you know makes Makes all the deals with different people and and co-promoting and cross-promoting and doing all that stuff, which which is all stuff I plan to do, you know. But there's there's lots more involved in where Steph and I like would like to take Morbidly Beautiful, so it's it's a little bit more than your typical role. I am looking into getting the full nonprofit status for it as well as working with schools. Uh, You know, anything from makeup schools to educational facilities that, you know, may help people get to where they want to be involved in horror.
0: That's great. That's huge. That's actually That's an amazing, huge, important, wonderful job. So that's really great that you're on on the team. You're on board.
1: Yeah, it's something we really we talked about at length and, and I know it's a direction she really would want to go. To give back to the community that's that's followed morbidly beautiful for so long, as well as whoever you know, ho- whoever joins in the future, it's all stuff that we really want to give back to you. Because even myself, to my fans or people that come and ask me, how did you get into effects? Those kinds of things, we we want to make sure that they get to have their creative outlet if that is their passion.
0: Is there anything that you can tell me slash us that you're kind of working on right at this moment? Or is there something like going to be announced in the upcoming months at all?
1: Well, um, yeah, probably. You'll probably see some things uh, with uh, I don't know if you know who Tom Devlin is, but he was face off season one. But he's done a ton of a ton of films for um, Full Moon and uh, you know he does makeup effects and he's starting a school I've gotten a little bit down the road with him but he's still building the school and mm-hmm. he's going to do online courses and everything so we're sort of putting that all together and, and taking a look at how that's going to look and I'm hoping to work with him to get us there I also have some ins with Stan Winston School as well so I'm hoping to make some of those things happen I have not yet spoken with Stan Winston School, but I hope to.
0: Amazing. That's really, really great. And you currently, besides Morbidly Beautiful, obviously you also work, like you've been working since, and any IMDb check will tell anybody this. So since like, since 1987, I guess, it's called The Laboratory?
1: Yeah, I, I the Laboratory is just my own entity.
0: (laughs) Oh. That's fantastic.
1: Yeah, it's just it's just cuz I do special effects and I do special props and I do I've done restaurant stuff, I've done all kinds of stuff cuz I because I live in Vegas. So sometimes I don't want to travel and I'll take a project like I built a 12-foot octopus for a restaurant here. And more recently, as you know, I did a music video for Slipknot with Steve Johnson. We shot all of that here.
0: Keeping busy doing different things here and there. Yeah. Las Vegas. Wow. I've never been there. Is it as interesting and glamorous as it seems?
1: Absolutely not. I try to steer as far away from the strip as I can, but, you know, it's yeah. it still could be fun. I mean, anything you really want to do here, you, know, you can do. It's, it's all here. That's for sure.
0: <laughs> that's definitely different than, uh, you know, pretty much any place in Canada, except for maybe Niagara Falls. We have our own teeny tiny little strip strip of really kitschy, cheesy cades and restaurants and Ripley's Believe It or Not. And there's a bunch of casinos in Niagara Falls. And it's it's adorable. It's close by. I love going. That's, I guess, as close as I'll get.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of like I I live far enough away from the strip that I don't have to be involved in the stuff I don't want to be. And then, you know, 15 minute drive and can see the coolest thing about Vegas is just about any band or any performer you want to see usually comes through here. So you can see just Mm. about anything or, or catch any show you want to. And there's lots of themed places here to go to lots of great bars, you know, that kind of thing.
0: I live in Toronto. So a lot of people, big, big city, quote unquote, can be can be a lot to deal with. But if you live like in suburbia, a little bit outside of Toronto, you can just like easy come in into town, let's say and do a bunch of these things like see a good show, go to these themed bars, themed restaurants just have like a good time but then leave it's nice to leave <laughs>
1: right right exactly it's nice to go home chill things. out at home yes have yeah. a, well for you maybe it's a glass of wine for me it's rum so I'm good you know get to chill and-
0: I do like a good glass of wine so yes thank you yeah. <laughs> well that is really 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 neat so morbidly beautiful that's how we kind of met so obviously you're a horror fan, you work a lot in horror. I'm a horror fan, we're all horror fans. It's morbidly beautiful and you know, horror is fantastic. So why don't you just uh, give me a little brief rundown of little baby Nick as a horror fan. Like when did that start? Were you like a lot of us where you were like a five year old kid and you just got really into horror or is it like a later on in life thing?
1: Oh no, it's, it's been a part of my life, my entire life. I was born in Los Angeles and my mother was an executive for Universal. So I grew up on the Universal lot, you know, I I'm even to the point where if she took me to work, you know, or whatever, I think I think I had I think she didn't let me take the golf cart until I was about 12 or 13 years old. But, uh, you know, she would let me take her golf cart and just drive all over wherever I wanted to on the lot and take her little credentials with me. And and you used to be able to, if you have the golf cart and the credentials, you can cut in line on any ride, you can do whatever you wanted, (laughs) and you pretty much had carte blanche. So I grew up on that lot, and I just fell in love with the Universal Monsters very, very early on. And it just became sort of an obsession for years. I mean, everything from Dracula to the creature from the Black Lagoon to... Wolf man, I just w- w- obsessed on all of those things and listen to them. Children of the night,
0: what music they make.
1: As I grew up, more and more came out. You know, in the child of the 70s, all the Hammer films came out, so it was just like mm-hmm. I was... Some of them were a little violent and sexy for a kid to be watching, so I'd have to sneak off and watch them. And <laughs> you know, so my, mo- my mother wasn't into that, but she'd catch me watching stuff like that. and, and was fun. <laughs> I remember sneaking off and watching Legend of Hell House, and she got mad at me for that. Boy. But uh, it was <laughs> quite funny in, in retrospect, but...
0: That is incredible. And yeah, a lot of us horror fans definitely don't have an upbringing like that. So did your mom like horror movies or?
1: No, not particularly. No. She was not much of a horror fan. She didn't mind that I liked the Universal monsters. They were pretty harmless. But, uh, you know, yeah. you start getting mm. into the the horror of the 70s and some of the the more graphic stuff. She was just not feeling it. And, you know, another little funny side story as a teenager going to school they used to have these uh, little folders i don't i don't know if they still make them or not my kids don't have them but uh, they used to have these things called peachy folders and they had like these like black and white renderings of like athletes like basketball players on them and stuff and what i would do is i'd draw mohawks on them and instead of a basketball the dude's sticking the other one with a knife and (laughs) all kinds of silly (laughs) shit like that so i was drawing i was making drawings over the tops of those and my mom thought something was really wrong with me but uh, as soon as i as soon as i you know got out of the house and got into monster making she's like okay that explains everything
0: yeah, that makes sense. That's the good progression. Like that's where you would hope your kid would go. That's amazing. So being a special effects artist, which is a, seems like a really neat job to have, like I'm a vet tech in my day-to-day life, so, you know, there's there's always, there's a perception that my job, it either goes two ways. It's either I just play with puppies and kittens all day, which <laughs> is sadly not the case. I do right. see those. Or it's just like euthanasia is left, right, and center. And it's just, we just yeah, see that's, animals that's die all the time. Yeah,
1: that's depressing.
0: Yes, which is not the case. <laughs> like, not all the time. There's a balance between all of these things. So when it comes to being in the industry that you're in, of course, we have... Everybody has their perceptions of what that would be. Oh, that seems so cool. That's so glamorous. And like, justice just would be amazing all the time. But I'm going to assume just like any job, even if it's your dream job, that there are some pros and cons to it. So if there's anything, you know, about the industry that maybe is not always the best, like what, what are some of the struggles and challenges that you have?
1: Well, I mean, you know, you have a lot of people to answer to when you're doing special effects. You get a mm. film or something like that. You got all kinds of executive people, like the, anyone from the director up, that are going to not necessarily like what you're doing or they want to change something. And it can be really frustrating at times. You know, sometimes they give you carte blanche and then you get there and you think everything's awesome. And, you know, then they turn around and want to change everything or they just want to scrap everything and shelf it. So it oh, it can boy. get really frustrating. But you know, in all honesty, even with all of the bad stuff that goes along with that stuff, it's just really cool to be doing that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it mm-hmm. is it is really cool. It does have its challenges. It does have long long hours. It does require a lot from you physically yeah. and mentally, but it's really freaking rewarding when things go right.
0: I can imagine, and then you, then you know the you know, the music video, the film, or whatever it is that you're working on when it's made and finished, and people are seeing it. and You're like, I did that, that, that. I could see that being and yeah, you know, it, an incredible feeling.
1: It is. It's pretty cool, and it, it's pretty. It's still cool for me. At you know, at 52 mm-hmm. years old now, to even go to <laughs> conventions and have people still feel like my work is relevant to them today. It just. It's really an honor to have people still really love that, and I really appreciate it. You know. I really do. I appreciate all the fans and I appreciate anybody that's an aspiring artist to get into it. You know, I just I really, really enjoy it.
0: That's great. See, after all these years, you know, even in the same career we can still have the passion that we had when we first started, you know. Sometimes we get a little jaded.
1: Oh yeah. Oh yeah.
0: <laughs> yep. We still love what we do. Again, I can relate a lot. It's a very different field, but it those fresh young people when they join into the the industry, you just think, Ah, <laughs> oh, I remember what it was like to be that just Bright-eyed and (laughs) bushy-tailed. Oh, yeah. So your resume definitely is highly, highly impressive. There's a lot of really incredible genre films on there. Before we get into a couple of highlights, um, is there one job or film or whichever that you did, like a special effect that you wish got more attention? Because, of course, there's the big names like Society or Nightmare on Elm Street 4. But what about some of the, you know, I guess not as well known? Is there something that you're really proud of that maybe more you hope you wish more people would talk about?
1: Not particularly because, you know, I feel like I was really, really lucky to be doing what I was doing when I was doing it. It's not it's not like today where you have so many independent films being made, which are really I mean so many of them are really cool. I like them all, even the stupid ones, but you know, mm. it's it's like there's just so much stuff being made now. And then it was just like studios were the only ones doing it. We didn't have camera phones and you couldn't shoot a film on a camera phone. You couldn't sh- mm. we didn't have digital. We didn't have all that stuff then. It was you had to have a really fat budget. I mean, a, a low budget in those days was, you know, through, you know, 1 to 3 million dollars. And some of the stuff I was fortunate to work on was like $30, $40, 50000000 million budgets. So for me, at least in that time, not relevant to today, but I was very lucky. Out of high school, I was a musician doing a lot of performance art, weird stuff. I wound up roommates with my guitarist, and my guitarist's brother was Kevin Brennan. I'm um, not sure if you know that name, but... I don't, our, I'm sorry. Our other roommate was Steve Johnson, who ran Boss, Boss Film Creature Shop. Kevin was one of the original... Effects artist on the Howling, mm. and worked worked oh. very closely with Rick Baker, incredible sculptor, nice. in- incredible artist, and obviously you know Steve is as well, and our other roommate was Steve Johnson. So all of the things I wanted to do performance art wise in my band with my guitarist talk about them and we were kind of setting up the you know, and Steve would kind of overhear it, and you know a few months went by, and I'm practicing with my band and whatnot, and you know Steve like pulls me aside one day and says hey you know all this talk about making all this stuff and doing all this performance stuff why don't you come make rubber monsters so <laughs> it was kind of the rest was history it's kind of dumb luck you know it just happened to fall into the right place at the right time it was very fortunate of me and or for me and i just kind of fell into it really
0: that's amazing i love when that happens
1: yeah, so me, so too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> me too organically me too worked well for me <laughs>
0: What's something that's like the favorite film that you've worked on, your favorite piece?
1: It's super hard to say that there's a favorite because as an artist, and and I don't know if you can really understand this, but I think everybody can at a level. When you're working on something, I'm like my own worst critic. You know, I'll, I'll, let's say uh, I start a sculpture and I work on it for a day and then I come back with it the next day and I'm looking at it and I see everything wrong with it. I never see what's right with it. So my problem is, is I, I'll look at something and I'll, I'll, will block it out or I'll start, you know, doing whatever I need to do. And then I look at it and the more I look at it, the more I hate it. <laughs> so,
0: mm. so it gets
1: harder for me to really want to just do anything with it. So it's better if I just do it fairly quickly, knock it out, get it out. So that's kinda that's kinda how it works for me at least. But I know there's a lot of artists that struggle with that. But particular pieces, hard to say. I mean I really enjoyed the work I did on society because that artistically was like um George and I were very very much alike in our artistic tastes. I was a bit, huge fan of Dolly and Bosch and Giger. They were my favorite artists as as a teenager. You know, all the surreal stuff. And then to find and meet George and actually get to work for him. That man is just—he's like—he's like everything I aspired to be. So meeting with him, he's a painter. He's—he's he's an incredible effects artist. You know, he's a musician, and so we jived on like every level. We liked all the same stuff. You know, so it was—it was, it was kind of natural right. for me to fall into. I went from Steve's shop to working with him, and I stuck with him through most of my career up until I left Los Angeles. Right. And and that was the last person I worked for in Los Angeles was George. And then he moved to Japan.
0: That's totally fair. That that, that seems to make a lot of sense, you know, talking to to creative folks that I know. It's their yeah, they're their worst, own worst critic and they're just never happy and they end up being perfectionists yeah. and it's just my a partner my partner is a filmmaker, cinematographer, he directs, he writes. It's kind of a jack of all trades and you know, trying to get him to finish something is challenging. Yeah, yeah I,
1: I I I understand him. <laughs> I I am there. I do the same things. It's like you have to kind of you have to kind of step away for a minute and maybe start something else and then come back yeah.
0: to it. Well, I have to say that one of my favorite things that you've done is definitely the work on Nightmare on Elm Street Four. And <laughs> yeah. I remember when your name came up on the Morbidly Beautiful, and I was like, Whoa, 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 wait! All I saw was Nightmare on Elm Street Four, I'm like, What? Because for me, and I know that I'm in the minority here, but Nightmare 4 is my favorite, besides the first one, of course, but Nightmare 4 is my favorite Nightmare on Elm Street film. And number three is normally people's favorites. Hmm. I get it. Dream Warriors is usually the favorite, but I think it's probably there's a bit of nostalgia there because I grew up with Nightmare 4 and I've watched it a million times. I, for whatever reason, just didn't really, Dream Warriors, sorry, just didn't really catch me as much as Dream Master. Anyway, so I am obsessed with that movie. I wrote about it for my website and I just sing its praises all the time. And I love it so much. It's, a, it's one of my comfort films for sure. I love comfort it. horror movie, those exist. <laughs> (laughs)
1: Yeah, yeah, they do.
0: Yes, so when I saw that, I was just blown away because that movie is just one of my favorite just ever of all time. So you did the cockroach scene, like the whole thing, or which exact part?
1: No, there's there's a crew of about yeah. six people involved yeah. in that, and I happen to be one of them. Myself, Mark Barberino, yeah. uh, gosh, I can't screaming at George. I'm trying to think of all the other guys involved. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we all work towards the same goal. I mean, there was, that, right. that's one of those films where, you know, it's a huge budget mm-hmm. and the funniest part of that about that movie, and I really appreciate that you, that it is your one of your favorites mm-hmm. uh, because it is truly one of mine and it was a huge honor to like even go do it because I love Nightmare on Elm Street. I love the first Nightmare on Elm Street and it was just crazy for me to get that call and say, hey, we're doing Nightmare 4. Do you want to come work on it? So, oh, you know, how can you goodness. not want to do that? You know, I mean, it's just, it's just like, uh, yeah, I don't care what I'm doing right now. I'll drop it. So, so yeah, so it was great. Um, and I bounced between two shops on that. I bounced between Steve's and George's on that film because Steve was the one, Steve and his crew were working on all the Freddy's death stuff with a big, you know, they had a big 14-foot Freddy's chest. Yeah. It had. We yeah, had, yeah. I mean, we, we did so many different things with that. And, um, and then, you know, all the puppets coming out of all the soul puppets, all that stuff. We had so much stuff going on. And then the cockroach transformation, which I still to this day, I'm still very good friends with. That's one of the things about working on that film is all of that group of people. Have or at least a good chunk of them. We've all remained in touch. We're still friends. We still talk. We still love to go and do these things and talk about the movie together. It's just a blast because we have so many great memories and some of them are, are, you know, stupid and funny and some of them are just, you know, they blow your mind, you know, what happened behind the scenes, so, so to speak. There was a writer's strike during the filming of that movie, so a lot of it was written by the cast. You know, they wound up writing their own stuff. Yeah, it was um pretty big feat, you know. They they took it upon themselves to just kind of, you know, work with Rennie and work out dialogue and because there was really very little script there. So they pretty much they pretty much took care of that. They did a great job.
0: Yeah, I would I would definitely agree. I just thought the characterizations and the acting and the emotion and, the, yeah, the special effects. And I just thought that that was just, like, top-notch if you compare, like, going from, like, 2, 3 to 4. It was just, the music, the soundtrack is like, is just iconic. It's just, there's so many wonderful things about that movie that made it, like, this perfect Nightmare on Elm Street film.
1: Yeah, it was really great. Just, I think, about a week ago, I was on another podcast with Mick Drawn. He's the production designer from Nightmare 4. We were breaking down effect sequences there and there was even things I didn't remember about certain things that he had done there and it's just there's it just incredible it's just incredible to hear the stories about how something was done like the mm-hmm. uh, like well, I had Lisa with me on that podcast as well, but the scene where she's in the theater and she's gonna fall into the movie. Mm -hmm. They were talking about this whole rig that they built to lean forward where, like, she's basically leaning at an angle where she's hanging there. And there's a stunt double, obviously, but it's just, it was crazy to talk about that. And I, I remember how I kind of got on that film was, I think I was working on The Blob or something. I was up at a soundstage working on something else. I tend to wander when I'm like in between takes and stuff I wander and I do other things and go get, <laughs> nosed, get nosy and stuff like that see what's going on but uh, I kind of tripped over his junkyard set that he was building for the for the beginning of that film mm. and uh, met Mick that way and he was like oh hey so, and then I got the phone call from, from I think I can't remember if it was Steve or George first on, on who brought me on first but it just kind of ballooned from there and the, the cast I mean they're so amazing it's like Brooke Thies, I just, like, I love her to death because we put her through so much crap with Mm -hmm. Super Slime and all that stuff that we had on set. It was just so messy and so nasty. And she was just there, just like a trooper. She's like a superhero. She's like, yeah, let's do it. Let's go. Let's do it. The whole time. Like, not (laughs) complaining ever. And I'm just, I have so much respect for her. She was so awesome. I mean one of my best memories from that was I don't know if you know who Bill Forsh is he's another effects artist that I was working on that film with and uh, I have about two and a half hours of behind the scenes footage from him but he and I used to sneak over because all we had on our set for craft service was pizza that's all they ever brought they just brought in pizzas all the time (laughs) so right across the sound stage from where we were shooting was uh, a film patrick swayze was in called roadhouse they were Mm -hmm. shooting that on the stage across from us Uh, bill was like i don't know how he was he was like hobnobbing with all of them and like had some in with them or something and they were using him as an extra or some bullshit in between things and he and i would sneak over there because they had steak and lobster on their set so wow. we were like we we're like yeah we're going over there later
0: <laughs>
1: it's pretty fun nice
0: well there's so many people on there they wouldn't know that you're not oh a yeah no crew. no there was yeah that
1: was the thing is there was so many so many crew between ours and theirs and nobody knew who anybody was so it was it was really wow. easy to do
0: I've noticed that, yeah, you've become such close friends with a lot of the cast of, of Nightmare 4. And I, I don't know, is that like a common thing that happens? Or is it just like this extra special kind of situation that came about and was produced because of this movie? Like you do all this stuff together, you go on podcasts together, conventions kind of together, and you're really close with a lot of these actors.
1: I think that's kind of where it, it starts. I mean, in all, all in all, I know the Nightmare 4 cast have remained very, very good friends for, for all these years. And there was a few people, even from that, that, that I remained friends with. I mean, I, I think I got in touch with Brooke, like, I don't know, it was probably 10, 15 years ago now. I got back in touch with her, and, and she remembered me and remembered, you know, I was just like, I still can't believe that you aren't mad at us for, like, putting through everything (laughs) we put you through. Because she, I mean, and I'm just like, I'm still in awe of you because as an actress, you know, I've worked with different people on different movies and different sets, different situations that were so much less than that, and all they did was complain. So I just couldn't believe it, and, you know, we just became instant friends again and it was just it was like we picked up where we left off it was really cool that's one thing about that film that like everybody remained you know relatively everybody remained really close and everybody knows each other and we do see each other at conventions and it's it's really cool to, to see because that's one film where that really did there was a bond you know we were kind of a family so it was pretty cool
0: I love that. That makes me just love it even more because I just feel like that makes sense just with how everyone seemed to just the characters and how everybody seemed to just get along and there's just a lot of heart in that movie so I love that. Yeah, for sure. That's amazing. Speaking of Nightmare on Elm Street, because this is brand new and very relevant now, but let's talk about Stop the Nightmare.
1: Getting back to my friendship with Lisa. Lisa actually uh, recently moved here to Las Vegas um, and she and I are obviously friends, but she contacted me about we she, we had been talking off and on about you know little projects here and there and then this thing hit and we were just kind of like what are we gonna do I mean everything went on hold everything all production yep. stopped everything everything got yanked all the conventions got yanked so all of my income stream went away it disappeared in a day
0: yeah
1: oh, and, I'm so sorry and, so sorry. and yep. well it's the same thing for Lisa so it was like well yep. what can what can we do you know what can we do in the meantime to do something, to help out, to try to, you know, figure figure out how we can get rid of this thing and get back doing what we love. So she really, over, I would say it's about two weeks time period that she concepted everything. She she came up with all the idea and everything, and she called a very good friend of ours in Chicago, a guy named Ernesto Avina, and they basically started putting everything together, and Lisa just started making phone calls saying, hey, do you want to be involved in this? This is what we're going to do. This is, you know, we're going to make a PSA. We want to get it out there. Instead of being all gloom and doom, we want to make it a little more fun and try to lift people's spirits rather than
0: yeah. Oh my god.
1: Oh my god, this yep. is horrible, you know. So that's kind of where that's kind of where it started and she just called me and said, "Hey, would you mind doing this?" and I'm like, "Of course I'll do it." You know, there's there's <laughs> no reason I wouldn't do it. Yeah. So yeah, so that's kind of where that all started, and, and uh, Ernesto and production company out there put all the video together and shot all the footage, and, and then Lisa just spent all the time getting a hold of all of us mm-hmm. that she could get a hold of to be involved. She, I think she even tried Robert, but I don't know if—I I think we had to release it because we couldn't get back from Robert. We couldn't—we didn't hear back right. from him. So. Right, right
0: right so is it just going to stop at like this psa are we going to see some more from this project or you know because anything well, over on, elm street, on elm street like stop there the nightmare are some... <laughs> stop the
1: nightmare itself just it's it and now we have a charity cuz we have merch and stuff for sale so yeah, it's 100% of everything goes to that charity it's it's all about supporting artists and and everything so i mean that's really the end of that particular project it doesn't mean that right, right. things that lisa and i were talking about prior mm-hmm. to that won't develop once this all ends. Stop the nightmare. Stop the nightmare.
0: Stop the nightmare. Stop the
1: nightmare. Stop the nightmare. Stop the nightmare. Stop the nightmare. Stop the nightmare. Stay home. Save lives. You know, I was working on I had probably 14 scripts in development to make as many of them as they want to make. Uh, with a couple yeah. of production companies, but I don't know if the production company that I, that I had that with is going to survive this thing. So I may be back at square one, but that doesn't mean I'll give up because I have a lo- I have a lot of great scripts. I've mm-hmm. been given scripts for years and I've turned down a lot of scripts and I have like 14 in my pocket now that I want to get going on and two in particular that I want to do immediately and I've I've got several partners that you know we're trying to develop all this stuff and get the money to do them and and uh, they're they're mostly horror. I think there's only one that's like semi sci-fi.
0: That's great. At least, you know, once the world opens up again, it's like back to work and there's a lot a lot to be done. You know, it's unfortunate for like musicians and and artists like you and filmmakers and everything, that everything is on hold. But I just know that there's going to be this huge boom in all of this wonderful, wonderful content for us. And I'm definitely looking forward to that.
1: I agree. I definitely think that once everything ends, whatever has survived, you know, they'll be desperate for more and more content. So both online and at the theater and, you know, whatever, I mean, for streaming or whatever it is. I look forward to that because I really want to produce some more things and get my hands dirty again.
0: But I'm also loving a lot of this like online stuff. I mean, this stop the nightmare kind of you know, this get together, everybody came back together to do this kind of little content and create this, you know, charity. And now, you know what I mean? I'm also loving and and like, I'm sad this is all happening, but we're also getting some really interesting creative work and people coming together. And I'm loving this. I'm loving it a lot.
1: I'm, I'm working on another project for content as well. That's like, while people are stuck, I'm still doing like, they're more pod, they're more like video podcasts right now, but Mm -hmm. I'm I'm working towards getting content rights and things like that to do these online watch parties where we have Q&A sessions and we have live ability to do things together. And I think, you know, what's cool about this, I will say this is the coolest thing about what's happened with the the pandemic is that I think that it's made me really think about reach. And being stuck at home, I mean, even though we're doing all this online stuff... I'm seeing online conventions and virtual conventions. I'm actually part of one Mm -hmm. that's coming this weekend. Um, But that's a a lot of uh, British folks. But it's global. I mean, anybody that wants Mm -hmm. to go can go. Anybody that wants to be part of it can kind of be part of it, you know? So the reach is there on the Internet, and that's kind of where we've all turned. We've turned to the Internet for all of this, so it kind of gives you a little more, you know, we've been disconnected, in my opinion, for so long, but I think through this, I think everybody's going to be a little more connected mm. i don't mean virtually i just mean personally and i think that reach as a human you know is it's important that human interaction
0: I agree. And that's a really, really insightful point for sure that we will be more connected after this, even though, you know, yes, we say that we can hope our technology disconnects us, but this odd state of affairs has actually been connecting.
1: But if used for good.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So good. You know, I've I've done a couple of script readings with friends and I've I've just, you know, it's just been a blast. And like just seeing my creative friends do stuff online and just kind of release stuff. And it's just nice to see them. Just visually, you know. Oh, it's, yeah. Uh, so it's been amazing. And that Nightmare an Elm Street Project was just like another little highlight. I'm like, what? This is great. Oh. I love this. Just bring everybody together. Just warm my heart right now. Just do it.
1: Yeah, it's funny because Lisa's like, well, we'll even put the lyrics out there. They can sing along. I'm like, oh, my God, you're so funny.
0: She's adorable. <laughs> she's
1: she's She's wonderful. She's just such a such a sweetheart and uh you know I, it, here's another little funny tidbit is she and i share a birthday so i call her twinsie um uh, she and i have yeah. the exact same birthday so we we always tease each other in our birthday like happy birthday twinsie mm-hmm. so it's coming up actually pretty close i think five more days and
0: oh wow well, happy birthday thank you very early one yeah. who knows what's gonna happen in five days i feel like i'm gonna time travel there so <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know what's interesting too is this the extra content is that in my job, when I'm working, I'm tired and it's really intense at the vet clinic, but we're rotating staff. So I actually get laid off every two weeks for two weeks, and it's incredible. But I'm like, I have a whole lot of time right now. So that's why I, you know, I've been getting ahead of schedule and why don't I interview all these people and write reviews and just like get stuff set up for May and June, you know what I mean? So it's been helpful for me. But just getting extra content for the website is fantastic.
1: Oh, definitely.
0: And speaking of the website, that's a really great segue. So this is for Taboo Terrors. So Taboo Terrors is my monthly blog where I dissect extreme horror films. I've done... My most recent one was on The Woman, Lucky McKee's film. I've done Dumplings, Henry, Portrait of a Serial Killer. Oh, wow. I did uh, Aftermath, a Spanish short film. And it's more just, I think it's about six or seven months now that I've I've had this. So this is specifically for that. In my mind, uh, you'd be a, you know, practical effects expert and doing like gore effects and stuff like that. I thought you'd be a great person to kind of reach out to for this. (laughs) So speaking of extreme horror films and practical effects because obviously in, in many and in all um, extreme horror films, let's talk about like New French Extremity is uh, its own kind of little microcosm of, of that. But it, they're very graphic. They're violent. There's a lot of blood and guts and gore and practical effects. So right. are you fans of these films? Is there a particular affinity or an interest in them?
1: You know, I do have interest in, in some of them. But unfortunately, my wife is not a horror fan. She, she gets scared mm. very easily. So (laughs) it's kind of an interesting (laughs) marriage, to say the least. But I've gotten her I've gotten her to watch some not extreme stuff. But there are some films out there that I have interest in that I would like to see. But, uh, you know, I mean, a lot of that stuff is the fact that they're getting made is phenomenal. And while I don't know a lot about it, I do know a lot about the effects side of it. And there's Mm -hmm. a lot to do in those. Although, you know, you'll find some effects artists that kind of balk at that because they're just like, oh, yeah, just throw more blood on it. That in the genre is what people want. You know, they want to see that. They want to see all that stuff or they want to see what happens. And, and, you know, I mean, some of it's just insane. But, (laughs) I mean, is not that what it is. It's It's an escapist entertainment. So...
0: Most definitely, and in just thinking about it, I started thinking about Italian horror because it's one of my favorite countries for for horror. And a lot of those like Italian um, like zombie films and cannibal films, and there's a lot of movies like Lucio Fulci is like one of my favorites. Oh, God, yeah. And there's a just ridiculous amount of blood and guts and gore in those. Yeah. So, do you have any favorites at all, just like an overall that maybe, or just a movie that has really wonderful practical effects that you that you enjoy?
1: Yeah, there's one in particular. That I know that I've seen, because like I said, I'm not that familiar with the genre itself, but like Cannibal Holocaust, it was always a favorite. I loved I loved that one.
0: You did it, goddammit. You just invited us to dinner. Hey, what? Uh-huh. That's fair. I haven't seen it. That's actually one that I won't watch. And I have a disclaimer for taboo terrors is that I actually am not going to discuss or watch any movies that actually have animals harmed in them there's just, there's very few, thank goodness, but as an ethical vegan myself, it's just not a thing I want to be watching. I don't you want to bring understand. attention to to films that actually killed animals in them for the sake of filmmaking, which I think mm-hmm. is just very terrible and lazy. Uh, so Cannibal Holocaust is not one that I've seen. I right. obviously know all about it. I've seen videos and photos of it, and it looks like, I'm sure, from a practical effects point of view, that it's yeah. pretty wonderful. Yeah. So I do love your, your, your insight into this genre because it's just like it's so heavy in its practical effects to help show the narrative and and for me what I like about it is I think even Dario Argento said this it might have been Jorg who did Necromantic and Shram but if you don't show I want if I'm going to see violence in a movie I want it to be shown authentically and realistically because right. that's what's going to happen to a body if there's, if there's no blood that just that's that's that doesn't make any sense so I want to see something authentic and if there's sure. if it's not going to be authentic that I feel like that leads more into exploitation territory.
1: Sure. I, I can agree with that. And, you know, as an effects artist, I mean, I'll kind of backtrack a little bit. And, and with that, kind mm-hmm. of stuff having to be shown you know an effects artist has to do their research they have to they have to look at what that kind of situation may look like you know I'll use a film that I worked on it's, it's a comedy but I did use reference material to make these things there was a movie mm-hmm. called Dead Heat in 1987 or 1988 right around there
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, with Treat Williams and Joe Piscopo and it's Basically zombies investigating their own death zombie cops, but it, it's a very silly movie But the effects are so much fun. There's a guy in it that gets hit by a car one their bank robbers in the beginning of the film and One guy accidentally blows himself up with a hand grenade. The other guy gets hit by a car. So I had to make this body uh, is there's a basically it's um The stunt double for Peter Kent, so he's he blows himself up with a hand grenade by accident and uh, I had to make his remains So I had to think about what can I use as reference material to show something that looks authentic to Mm -hmm. what would happen to somebody that does that. Okay, so there's not a whole lot of people in the world that go blowing themselves up with hand grenades, so I didn't have a lot of reference material for that. There's a lot of war pictures and stuff like that, but you don't get... What you need. So what I did was I got reference material on plane crash victims. So what I used for my reference was plane crash victims. I got I got books. I checked out books from the library. I got photos from the morgue. I got I got all this reference material from plane crash victims. So I looked at those, mm-hmm. and I had to formulate what this guy would look like. Yeah. So that's where I started with that, and you know, and then yeah, that goes through the whole the gamut of things and making him so which. So his limbs are missing and things like that. And there's only his torso left and what's hanging out of him. You know, it's got to look right. So that's kind of how you break it down. And then mm-hmm. the second one was the guy that gets hit by the car. They actually cut that one out of the film. I still have that dude's head as part of my collection here. Nice. Um, but what happened to this, the other bank robber was they get in the car, they run him down and hit him so hard with the car he bounces off and back onto the concrete. Joe Piscopo comes around, he gets out of the car. I can't remember where he comes from. I don't, know, I don't remember if he was in the car or if he comes running over, but he kind of kicks the guy's head and says, you have the right to remain disgusting. Um, <laughs> but what happened in the, the effect was he sort of nudges the guy's head with his foot. And uh, what I had done was I built, I built the, the same actor's head, you know, we had a live cast, so I did this, this whole thing. We painted it to look like him. We put hair in it and everything, and it looked a lot like him. So what I did was, is I took, I made an underskull to hold his facial features properly. I had to cut it in half, and I built the back of his head around a weather balloon, so I put a weather balloon inside of it, and I filled it with like, I think, uh, if I recall correctly, it was like a gelatin and, and water and a little more watery mixture than normal because what i wanted it to do is i wanted it to kind of kind of slush over you know like the back of his head had been liquefied with the impact mm. so mm-hmm. so that was you know that was another thing that i had to kind of research and look for stuff like people that had fallen off of buildings or jumped off buildings and Yeah. Things like that. So you go and you find all that reference material, and then you kind of have to piece it together and say, okay, this is what would happen. You know, he gets gets hit by that car. The impact is that hard. It would be just like if he fell off a five-story building and crushed the back of his skull. So... That was sort of what happened with it, and Mark Goldblatt thought that the, the the scene with his head getting kicked over was so disgusting, he cut it out of the film.
0: Oh, that'd be so great to see. Yeah, so
1: that's—it's <laughs> it's funny, because it's like this this one little piece that I'm proud of that nobody's ever seen. Oh, no. I, I, I do have pictures of it, but, you know, it's not it's not really Whoa. the same, because it was cut out of the film.
0: Yeah, and that's that's kind of the dark side. Right? That, right? That's definitely not a glamorous side. Like if you and, <laughs> and, and as a viewer, I want something that's going to look realistic, not something yeah. that is improbable. So in order for for you to and anybody that makes practical effects and is involved in these uh, extreme horror films, if you want it to be as realistic yep, you're looking at these books, you're looking at videos you're looking at photos of,
1: of the real stuff.
0: Of the real stuff that people have actually gone through this. Like if you're showing somebody committing suicide by whatever method or getting shot. Like you need to look at this. Yeah. So that is, that's the dark side of making this that I don't think many people talk about that. You have to look at this probably sometimes traumatic, horrific stuff in our natural world of, uh, to, to make our movies. So thank you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right. It it is a little dark, but you know, it's, it's just one of those things that you have to, you kind of have to stomach it, you know, it's kind of like, well, okay, well this is tragic and it sucks. It sucks that I have to look at this. These were actual people this really happened okay you got to kind of put that aside put that over here and that's sort of where you know I I guess for me it's like my handling of it is you know dark humor and jokes and whatever to kind of put that aside and put it in a cupboard or whatever and close the door for a minute because I need to look at this and I have to get through it
0: completely I love that that's fantastic okay Well, that's pretty much all of my questions, Nick. Where, is there anything you want to plug or can plug right now about what you're you're doing? Any like recent things that people can check out?
1: In October, I finished a music video with the band Slipknot. And Sean Crahan turned that into a short film called Pollution. So if you want to look up, pollution and check that out i uh, after 35 years of not working with steve johnson he called me and that was an interesting project Mm -hmm. to come together after 35 years and do we certainly we certainly had a lot of fun and uh it is really quite a piece of interesting work and uh it was a lot of fun to do and it really really came together beautifully
0: Excellent. And how about social media? Are you on it? Where can people follow you?
1: Yeah, I'm on Facebook at Nick J. Benson Official and on Instagram at Nick Benson 427. And you can always find me or usually find me hanging around Morbidly Beautiful.
0: Excellent. Well, again, thank you so, so much for taking the time out for a Taboo Terrors exclusive interview. And I look forward to chatting with you more as we're kind of partners or in family. We're kind of family now. I don't know. With Morbidly Beautiful. (laughs) Definitely. Well, I mean, it's because of Morbidly Beautiful that this happened. So I'm excited to see Morbidly Beautiful, how it changes and grows. And I think Jess and I, my co-host of the podcast, um, we got in at this like really wonderful, beautiful time and we're really excited to be part of it so thank you again so much
1: fantastic can't wait to do more
0: i hope you enjoyed my interview with nick benson folks i had a fantastic time and i really feel like i made a new friend in the horror community and hey we all can use those right And off the record, we shared our mutual love and adoration for dark spiced rum. So it was amazing. I had a great time. He is a wonderful sweet man. And I hope you enjoyed the interview. So that's it for Kelly's Taboo Terrors for now. And until next time, folks, stay grim.